You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Well, we're in this third week of the series, Lost and Loved, where we're spending time together in Luke chapter 15. Uh, We're listening to Jesus teach about a topic that's close to his heart. And you find out it's close to his heart by what he does and what he says throughout the gospel accounts. And the thing that makes this teaching in this chapter so significant is his audience. He finds himself in Luke 15 surrounded by two different groups of people. One group, they're so bad, God would never approve of them. Another group that thinks they're so good, God wouldn't need to approve of them. And Jesus is looking at both groups, and he knows that both groups are wrong. And as, as only Jesus can, he tackles the topic head on, and he gives both, idea, both sides an idea on how this tension plays out in real life. I want to catch you up quickly, which is my way of saying, I've told this to the staff, like, like Netflix series, like previously on, all right? So I got to catch you up quickly on what we've looked at so far in the story. Uh, The chapter begins with something very significant, special to me. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So the tax collectors are like top-tier, multi-level tax farmers. They're hated by everybody. Um, They could take as much money as they wanted from their own people as long as Rome got their share. The people hated them so much, they didn't want to offend the sinners, so they created tax collectors as their own category. Like, they were their own category of bad. So you got the tax collectors, and then you got the sinners. This is everybody else that knew that God didn't approve them because of an occupation, because of a behavior, because of a misbehavior, because of a lifestyle, because of their morality or ethics. So the worst of the worst, okay? Get this. That means if Jesus was a pastor today, and you were a good church person, by the time you got to church this morning, the front rows would be filled with people that were the worst of the worst. And they couldn't wait to hear what Jesus was going to teach on that day. That's different from the local church today. And the reason this this verse is so significant for me is as we shape the way a city views church, we should look more and more like Jesus. So the front row is filled with the worst of the worst. And as you work your way back, no offense to anyone that's in the middle or the very back, this is the group that thinks they're good and have it together. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So the good guys also showed up to hear Jesus teach, but they muttered. He welcomes sinners and tax collectors. It's like Jesus is at church as a pastor. He's like, hey, come on in. It's like Jesus at the church is saying, I've saved you a seat. It's like Jesus is like, hey, sit close and afterwards we're going to grab lunch together. The the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were confused. They could not understand it. We brought this up every week. How did Jesus, the only perfect person in all human history, manage to always attract notoriously imperfect people and take it a step further? What was it about Jesus, the only perfect in all human history, that was so attracted to notoriously imperfect people? And here's the catch. Ready? Jesus actually had more in common with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law than he did with the tax collectors and the sinners. And better yet, let's push in harder. Jesus was actually in agreement with the theology and the belief system of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But 
But Jesus was so attractive to and attracted to the tax collectors and sinners. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're confused. They're asking questions like, does Jesus condone their behavior? Like, does, does he accept it? Does he allow it? Does he approve it? There's so much tension, so many questions. They're thinking, it seems like since that group is so attracted to Jesus, he must condone them. But that's not the issue at all. So Jesus tackles the tension by the audience, the two different groups, in a genius way. A story for him. He begins, he begins with talking uh, to both groups about something they would both agree on. Now, this is big because they don't agree on anything. Tax collectors and sinners on this side, Pharisees and teachers of the law. Jesus wants to get them to come to an agreement. So he starts out by talking about sheep. He says, suppose one of you guys has 100 sheep. One goes missing. He said, don't you stop whatever you're doing, leave the 99, and you go after the one. And everybody's nodding in agreement. Tax collectors, Pharisees, teachers of the law, sinners, they're all like, yeah, we agree on this. And he said, and, and then don't you go after that one, and then when you found it, you call your friends, you're like, let's have a party. I'm so excited because you're excited about the one that was lost and found. They're like, absolutely. So they're not in agreement. Jesus makes a statement. That's exactly what it's like for the Father. When someone's lost is found, like he stops everything to go after that one, and then there is celebration on behalf of the one. And before the audience, the, the audience of the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the teachers of the law, and the sinners, before they could ask a question, Jesus launches into another story. He looks to the ladies in the audience. He's like, hey, ladies, imagine you've got that gift that your dad gives to you to give to your future husband, you know, the headband that's got 10 coins. They're valuable coins. It's a gift to the future husband. Imagine you lose one of those. And one day you look and there's only nine. He said, don't you call time out. You like light a lamp. You sweep the floor. You move the furniture. And all the ladies in the group, tax collector wives, Pharisees, they're all nodding in agreement. That's exactly what we're doing. And all the husbands are like, yep, that's what she had us do. Like we would have to move the furniture. We'd have to light the lamp. We, we would do this very thing. And once again, everyone's in total agreement. When you lose something valuable... You focus on what's lost. And once again, Jesus looks to the audience and says, hey, in the same way, God gets so excited when what's lost is found. And before these two different groups can tie everything together, Jesus launches into the story that's the heart of this series. It's a story that we're honestly too familiar with. Jesus says there was a man. He had two sons, an older son, and a younger son. The, the older son was a behavior. The younger was a misbehavior. And Jesus, all of a sudden, as he's telling the story to the audience, keep the audience in mind, he's driving them to an extreme to make his point. He says, hey, uh, that younger son, the misbehavior, he comes to the father. He says, hey, dad, I, I, our relationship has not been right. You know it. I know it. So dad, why don't we go ahead and act like you're dead? Go ahead and give me the inheritance. It's coming to me anyway. All of a sudden, at this moment, everyone in Jesus' audience, as they hear him describe this story, they are equally offended because the Pharisees have sons. The teachers of the law have sons. The tax collectors have sons. The sinners have sons. They are all equally bothered. They're completely in agreement. And then Jesus hammers home his point by describing the father's response. Jesus says, so the father says, okay, I'm going to do it. 
The father sells what he's got. He trades what he's got. He liquidates it. And he gets this gift, this collection of gifts, and he gives them to the son as if the father had died. On that day when Jesus tells this story, you could hear a pin drop in the audience. They would, all, they would all come in agreement and say, what kind of father does that? And Jesus takes it further. He says, the son would go away to a distant land and he would liquidate what he's got and he wouldn't even get a fair share. In a matter of time, the son would spend the money. He'd walk around with bags of money. He'd make friends, connections, parties. But he would go through this quickly. Like, like he would go through it so fast. In other words, he spent everything that it took his father a lifetime to amass. And once again, the audience... It's on the same page. But this time, they're equally angry at the son. And Jesus is like, wait, it gets worse. A famine comes to the land where the son is. The son is so desperate, he's broke. He's got to find a job. The only job that he can find is a Jewish boy is feeding pigs. And he's starving, feeding unclean pigs to the point where he craves the food that the pigs are eating at this point. Jesus' audience, tax collectors, sinners, teachers of the law. And then you've got the worst Pharisees, like these Pharisees that have it together. They're all like, man, we completely agree with this story. We are mad at this kid. It's like the first time they've all actually agreed on something. So you kind of got little high fives going around. Like, like, this is it. And you can imagine, if Jesus were to stop the story right here, and all the dads that were in that audience would go home that night, they'd have dinner with the family and say, hey, guys, heard a great story today kids sit down. Um, Let me tell you what Jesus said. And this is what happens if you offend your dad. It comes from God. In other words, they would say things that we all know. You reap what you sow. You get what's coming to you. What goes around comes around, son. You make your bed, you sleep in it. Your past will come back to haunt you. It's all these things. and, And the audience is feeling the weight of this on behalf of the son that's in the pigsty. And their idea so far is this wasn't just a good story. It's a great story. Everyone's on the edge of the seat. But Jesus keeps going. When the boy came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I'll set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. In other words, Dad... This wasn't an accident. What I did, it was intentional. And I'm not a mistaker. I'm a sinner. And dad, to let you know how bad I feel, verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to the father. And everyone in Jesus' audience is thinking, man, this is going to be good. Like I thought it was great already because... I was thinking that he was going to spend the rest of his life feeding pigs. But now he's going to go back home and he's going to get exactly what he deserves. And the entire audience, even though it was a wide variety of people, they all knew what the son deserved. And Jesus continues with his made-up story to make this point. Verse 20. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with And if Jesus had turned to the audience and asked the audience, hey, why don't you finish the sentence? Why don't you fill in the blank? The father was filled with, they would have responded, 
anger. Because how dare the son humiliate a father like this? It's, it's anger. Because that's what you're supposed to feel when someone takes advantage of you and then they return. It's anger. It's the only thing a father should feel after being treated the way the son treated his dad. It's like righteous indignation. It's anger. But Jesus looks into the eyes of the Pharisee, the teacher of the law, the tax collectors and the sinners. And he finishes the sentence. The father saw him and was filled with compassion. The audience is still in agreement. They look at each other like, this does not make sense. Filled with compassion. What about anger? Did the father forget what happened to the son? What the son did? How he spent everything? And to bring even more clarity on behalf of the father's compassion, Jesus tells us what the father did in this one verse. I want us to listen closely. This story's too familiar. I want us to read it and to see the father's compassion like never before. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. And he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around his son. And he kissed his son. On behalf of looking into this story with fresh eyes, I've got a couple questions. I want you to think about this. What if this story isn't just about a prodigal son? What if it's also about a prodigal father? Some might say that you're already familiar with the story, but the dad, he didn't leave home. He stayed. That's not what the word prodigal means. Let me show you the definition of prodigal. Prodigal means spending money or resources freely and recklessly. Wastefully extravagant. So on behalf of the father's compassion... It's recklessly extravagant. It's scandalous. And as Jesus describes the recklessly extravagant compassion of the, of the Father, the audience is probably sitting there with their arms crossed. On behalf of the compassion of the Father, I have questions to ask in light of this verse. Number one, why would a father treated like this still be looking? See, it says in the text, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I mean, why would a father waste his time looking? The story that Jesus tells does not give us a time frame on how long the son was gone. It could have been weeks. It could have been months. It could have been years. All we know is he came back when he came to his senses and when he realized that he needed to go home because he'd done the father wrong. Understand, the text implies the father never stopped looking. So every morning the father, longing for the son, is sitting on that front porch looking over the horizon in his rocking chair. And every night he's back at that front porch in the rocking chair with the porch lamp lit, eagerly looking far for the son. The father never stopped looking. And understand this, the father is waiting to be wanted. Like his hand, his reach goes to far distant lands. I mean, the father, 
The Father can arrange or allow consequences or occurrences or events that get our undivided attention, that cause us to come to our senses. But when it happens, he's not doing it to pay us back. He's doing it to win us back. And so the Father is waiting to be wanted. And even though he's patient, like he's patiently waiting to be wanted, even though he's patient, the Father isn't slow. 2 Peter 3, 9, the father isn't really being slow about his promise, like some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent, like to change the way they think about themselves, to see themselves as the wayward son, to change the way they think about the father, to change the way they think about running, about returning. So the father is not slow, in fact, Jesus in the story describes the father as running. So second question, why would a father treated like this be running? Middle Eastern patriarchs, they don't run. It's undignified. People of nobility walk. And they walk at their own pace. There is no need for Middle Eastern patriarchs to be in a hurry. But in Jesus' story, the father rolls up a robe, tucks it into his belt, and he runs. It's dangerous to run in a robe. So why does he run? Compassion compels him. For a second, let me kind of inform you on some significant words to get to the point. Uh, there is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, written by Moses, it's called the Torah. It's the law. It is the basis for the Jews on their faith, the rules, the laws that God initiated. It is the part of our Bible. But there is also a collection of writings called the Talmud. The Talmud was written by Jewish scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law on debates, on their practical day-to-day -day response to the Torah. So the Talmud is not part of the Bible. It's a collection where they're thinking, okay, the law says this. Here's how it should actually play out in our community. And there is a ceremony inside the Talmud that was written in the days of Jesus called Kazeza. I want to read what the Kazeza is. Kazeza was a ceremony that a Jewish village would have for someone who had left home, who had rejected the community's principles, lost all of his or her possessions to the Gentiles, and then decided to return. The villagers would break pottery at the feet of the individuals. The pottery would be cooked and baked in stinky beans, symbolizing that they were no longer in community with the returning person. It would shatter at their feet. They were breaking relations with them. It was a way of shaming the individual and making him feel completely empty, importantly, the ceremony would take place on the outskirts of the village before the individual could make his way back home. So why did the father run? The father doesn't just run. He races. He was protecting his son from the Kazaza. He races to get to his son before the rest of the angry village. He longs to protect his son from the broken shards of pottery, from the stench of shame affiliated with the food inside, the rejection. He compassionately races to get there first. 
Our problem is when we read the story, we think about a dad running from the front porch to the front yard. No, the father's running from the front porch to the very entrance of the village. He's running to beat the mob that was going to shame the son. So the father doesn't just run, he races. And on behalf of the compassion of this father. Question three is, why would a father treat it like this? Show so much affection to the son. I mean, he, he doesn't stop looking. He doesn't stop running until he gets to him. And then he gets to him and he hugs him. And then it's like Jesus looks in the direction of the Pharisees and says, and then he kissed him. Why would a father treated like this show so much affection? You realize the son just came from being with pigs. The stench is on his clothing. He's the furthest thing from being ceremonially clean as a Jew. There's the stench of sin and shame. I'm talking, this is a scandal. But the father holds him tight. And the son, in the story, he awkwardly pushes away. He needs to come clean. So he pulls out his four-by-six card. The speech that he'd been working on for some time. It's a long speech. He's memorized it, but he's written it down. He's got to get it started properly. So he pushes away from the dad, and he begins to start the speech. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And as Jesus is making the statement on behalf of the son, no one in the audience is arguing. They're all looking at each other. Son's exactly right. He's 100% accurate. But guess what? The father interrupts the son. He doesn't let him finish the speech. But the father said to the servants, quick. This word bothers me. It probably bothers all of us. Because here's how we'd say, let's see how this goes. Let's see if he's sincere. Let's put him somewhere with supervision and watch him closely. Uh, let's see if he's really sorry. Or let's see if he's just run out of money. Time will tell. But by all means, don't tell mom yet. She's soft. I don't want to get her hopes up. That's how we do it. But Jesus puts these words into the mouth of the father. But the father said to the servants, quick. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and then let's kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. Look here, for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Talk about recklessly extravagant. Let's talk about scandalous. Jesus is like robe, ring, sandals, steak, music, DJ, dancing. Let's party. Son, you didn't eat dinner. Let me get you dessert. And let me tell you right now how I think this would look today. If my son, Silas, were to take the approach of the wayward son, and if somehow, by God's grace, I would take the approach of a compassionate father. Today's world... Okay, I don't have a robe, I don't wear rings, and I don't wear sandals. My feet are so pale, like toes too long, like don't wear sandals, all right? 
But I do have some favorites. <laughs> if you know me, you already know this. I have a favorite hoodie. Uh, Jen gets ticked with me. My whole family does because when I find something, I'm buying every color. So, like, this is my favorite hoodie. Typically, it's like a Monday thing. Then the next color is Tuesday. The next color is Wednesday, Thursday. I've got four, and they rotate. All right? So, I do have a favorite hoodie. And, got it right here. I have my original wedding band. And I also have my favorite shoes, Nikes. These are a gift from some friends. This is, if you've seen me much, I wear these too much, all right? So if my son was a wayward son, he comes home. And I'm the compassionate father taking my cues from Jesus. You know what I'd say? I'd say, hey, go get my favorite hoodie. Go get my original wedding band. Go get my Nikes. Go get my shoes. Put them on Silas. Because if my son is wearing my hoodie and my wedding band and my favorite shoes from a distance, do you know what people would say about my son? They'd say he looks like his father. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for the wayward son, you and me. Like when we come to our senses and we arise and we get up and we go and we say, like, I don't deserve to be your son. Just make me a hired servant. He's like, quick, quick, go get the robe. Go get the ring. Go get the shoes. Get a steak. Get music. Get a DJ. It's time for us to celebrate. And understand, if we only understood how much God really loved us as wayward kids. If we understand, only understood and comprehended from the biblical perspective that he loves us that much, that he'd say robe, ring, shoes, stay, music, dancing. If we only understood, let me tell you what we would do. We would run to him and not from him. And so today, on behalf of those, find yourself running. I hope you have a glimpse of a compassionate, loving Father. Whatever's happened to bring you to your senses, it happened to win you back, not to pay you back. And he's been watching. He never stopped watching. And he's running, not just running, he's racing. And on behalf of this Father, he wants to embrace you. And you could start with your speech and tell him that you're a sinner. And he will interrupt. And he will call you son. And he'll say, give, give him the robe. Give him the ring. Give him the shoes. And it's in that instant when others see you and I, we look just like our father. God, thank you for today. I pray for those in this room that are at all kinds of extremes. Some are good. And we think that we deserve all the goodness. You approve of us because of our goodness. God, we're wrong. And some in this room think they're so bad. You'd never approve. God, they're wrong. And I want to thank you. I want to thank your son 
keeping this story in the Bible. And for your genius approach, showing all of us we're wrong. Getting all of us to agree and shattering our perspective on a God that's compassionate when we return, not angry. And I pray that compassion would compel wayward sons and wayward daughters to arise from where they're at. To turn around and head to the direction back home and say to the Father, I have sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please forgive me. And for everyone in this room, I just want to remind you today like I remind you each week, it is not too late 